I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the... Dignity of man. The pyramids were built to last forever. They were created to be rock solid and withstand the unpredictable, often powerful turbulence of time. Now, ideas and principles are, of course, written on paper, which eventually does become dust. But the intent behind what is written is sometimes designed to last as long as the pyramids. Ideas that last beyond time, applying fully and completely to all future civilizations, which set the documents as a foundation. As with the brilliant architects of the pyramids, we Americans, nearly 250 years later, recognize the brilliance of our founders and still treasure the Constitution. Well, all of us at least pay lip service to its greatness as our divisions continue to intensify, Each side claims a real understanding of the intent of the Constitution and insists the other side has it all wrong. But is there such a thing as a perfect document? The Constitution has been pretty darn close, lasting all these years, and the courts and our system of government being continuously measured against it. The idea of equal justice under law, of a government not by and for the aristocratic moneyed sector, these principles are uh, we all or most of us value remain committed to, government of, by, and for the people, the common good. But might it be time to revisit what became the founding document? Or is the idea of a constitutional convention really dangerous? What if that hallowed founding document in some cases actually, but unintentionally, exacerbates problems which could not have been foreseen in the late 18th century. Well, in their newly revised book, Fault Lines in the Constitution, The Framers, Their Fights, and the Flaws that Affect Us Today, authors Cynthia Levinson and Sanford Levinson add new chapters to their four-starred 2017 edition. And we have them both with us today, Cynthia and Sanford. Thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you for having us. Indeed. Cynthia Levinson writes award-winning nonfiction books about social justice for young readers, including We've Got a Job, the 1963 Birmingham Children's March, and The Youngest Marcher, the story of Audrey Faye Hendricks, a young civil rights activist. And Sanford Levinson, an American constitutional and legal scholar, has been a law professor at the University of Texas for almost 40 years and is the author of several books for adults on the Constitution, including Framed, America's 51 Constitutions and the Crisis of Governance, an argument open to all, reading the Federalists in the 21st century. Well, again, thanks for being with us. And tell us about the title, the target audience, and why you revised it. Three big questions. Okay, well, let's get started. We appreciate this. So, fault lines in the Constitution. As uh, your listeners can probably understand, guess 
fault lines is a geological term um, about um, you know geological fissures uh, in the earth and the tsunamis that can result from those when they go awry. And uh, we believe there are fault lines in the Constitution that can cause terrible problems down the line, down the line meaning now. Um, so what the framers did back in 1787, though, as Sandy says, we do not engage in founder bashing. Um, That's good. The, some of the outcomes of their work or the obsolescence of it, of some of their decisions that made sense at the time, have caused great problems. Um, since then, including to today. The title, in fact, was suggested by our editor, Kathy Landwehr, Peachtree Publishers, um, who had uh, read a previous book by Sandys. The target audience is um, uh, it's written for 10 and up. Mm -hmm. um, we emphasize the up as well as the 10. Um, <laughs> we think that it's appropriate for readers of all ages. Um, in fact, almost everybody we talk to, regardless of age, has said that they learned um, a lot from the book. They really found it revealing. But wait now, I think I've forgotten one of the questions. The title and Why you revised the target it. audience. What was the third one? Why you revised it. What are the new revisions? Oh, thank you for reminding me. Yes, sure. why we revised it. So the book is so current that even when the first edition came out in 2017, we blogged about it at that point every two weeks to keep it updated. After a year, our editor came back to us and said, you know, um, in addition to the blogs that you've been posting, we think that you need to do a second edition. And so we wrote an entirely new part in uh, the book that just came out this week, um, on presidential powers. It's called, oh, wow. Can the President Really Do That? Ah. Which is, of course, very current right now. Um, there's one chapter on whom can the President pardon, and another on whom can the President hire, and especially whom can the President fire, and who not, um, and how. Wow, yeah, that's some very timely stuff. It, it is amazing. Mm -hmm. and this this does seem to be a rare moment in our history where renewed understanding of the Constitution is really more necessary than ever. And I know, you know, every election year people say, oh, this is the most important year than, uh, than ever. But, boy, it really s seems to be. Now, you talk about the power of the presidency. This, you know, that's, I, I think a lot of people don't, understand the intention uh, our, our current president it seems to me you'll get my political uh, uh, bias in a minute has similarities to authoritarian dictators in history specifically the authoritarian dictators reject the idea of co-equal branches of government and consider themselves to be the law trump seems to be to love love issuing executive orders. It's, it's really fun for him, apparently. You know, I think that's absolutely correct. But I think that in absolutely minimal fairness to Donald Trump, because I certainly share what I assume are your views, yeah. <laughs> that the move toward executive power in a certain number of areas has been a constant of American politics 
especially since World War II, partly as the result of the fact that the United States fully and completely entered the international system, sets of alliances, military bases all over the world, and this is also against the background of a belief that Congress had proved itself basically incompetent, going back to the failure to ratify the Versailles Treaty, um, the fact that the draft was sustained by only one vote in 1940, and nuclear weapons, the whole notion that decisions had to be made very quickly rather than an old-fashioned process by which if you decide to go to war, then there was a lot of time to debate. So, you know, Harry Truman went into Korea unilaterally yes. without congressional consent, right. uh, claiming that the new United Nations Treaty required it. You can look at every president since Truman, Republican and Democrat, and find what one could describe as, at the very least, pushing the envelope of executive power. Uh, I, for example, uh, tend to be something of a revisionist on the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, where John Kennedy um, established huge public support um, for engaging in activities that were really quite dubious with regard to his response to the Soviet missiles um, in Cuba. Mm -hmm. um, we could also talk in this context of both George W. Bush and Barack Obama. Yes. What Trump has done uniquely, I think, is not only the extent of his pushing the envelope, but quite frankly the fact that very few people can truly believe that he is not a demagogue and or has surrounded himself with advisors who are trustworthy. And so he is a frightening figure. But I think we make a mistake if we say that he comes out of nowhere. Right. And part of the imp oh, sure. importance of the book, I think, is to emphasize that there are these fault lines we, the nature of a fault line is that you usually never think of them until the earthquake and tsunami happens. And from one perspective, Donald Trump is the earthquake, but the fault line has been there, and there have been lots of tremors over the last 60 years, which, frankly, we've tended, relatively speaking, to ignore. Yeah. It's so much easier to ignore them than to pay attention to them. Well, what about the the old-fashioned requirement that congressional approval is required before declaring war? Is that just obsolete now? I mean, what are your thoughts about that, Cynthia? Well, I mean, obsolete is a double-edged term. Is it legally obsolete? We could get into a not very productive conversation that would focus on what different lawyers might say. As an empirical matter, it just hasn't happened since 1942 when we declared war on Romania, I think. And so, you know, you get back to the Korean War. 
1950, Harry Truman sent the troops to um, uh, South Korea. Um, They then invaded North Korea, largely at the behest of Douglas MacArthur. Um, Congress funded the war, but Congress never, ever declared war. And that has become the pattern. There have been congressional acquiescence. Uh, There was the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which is the authorization to use military force. But that's very, very different from the solemnity of a declaration of war, which, among other things, requires you to, to detail quite explicitly whom you're at war with and why. Of course, the checks and balances Mm -hmm. aspect of the Constitution depends on those other branches making use of, taking advantage of their uh, rights and powers. And if one or more of the branches declines to um, check the others, then they've forfeited that. Or, you know, Congress has in fact delegated huge amounts of discretionary authority to the president over the last 60 or 80 years. And, I mean, I am outraged by Trump's unilateralism on tariff policy. Mm -hmm. But what he can do and does do is point to statutes that allow presidents to do that. Um, To go back to something you said earlier, I think it's important to recognize that both the Constitution and the American political system ensuing from it are really quite schizoid with regard to presidential power. That in certain areas, particularly foreign and military policy, I think it's fair to say that the president has um, extremely wide powers that can be used in very scary ways. But ironically or not, one of the things that explains why presidents of both parties have pushed the envelope in certain areas of domestic policy um, is that Congress is unresponsive to presidential agendas, in part because of bicameralism, the Senate filibuster, and other things we talk about in the book. And so they push the envelope through exercise of executive authority. And quite frankly, one example is Barack Obama's um, executive order instituting DACA. And we have a chapter in our book Mm. that really revolves around DACA. But the reason he did it, and we spell this out very, very clearly, is that a bipartisan bill passed the Senate in 2010 that would have alleviated the problems of the dreamers and other aspects of immigration. It would have passed the House of Representatives, except that the Republican Speaker, John Boehner, simply, utterly refused to bring it to a vote. And so bicameralism and divided government blocked us from pretty much resolving this issue now nine years ago. And so Barack Obama, who had first said, I can't do this, I'm not a king, then decided, well, you know, he could do it after all, 
And then we got DACA, which most Democrats support. But it certainly was a pushing of the envelope. Well, but there's no question that democracy ain't the most efficient system. In fact, it seems to me it's kind of not particularly efficient by design. The most efficient. It's not clear that efficiency is our highest goal. <laughs> exactly. I know. Yeah. You know I'm it, sure it, that it should be our right. highest goal. In fact, I mean, efficiency would be a king, would be exactly. a monarch. Exactly. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, I, I kind of like the inefficiency of, of the Constitution. And there, there's so many conflicts that happened, and, you know, so many people really don't. I think, frankly, understand the divisions that that have been there since before the Constitution. I mean, my understanding of the creation of the Constitution is that it was hardly straightforward. There were many factions fighting together for independence. For example, there were the rabble on the streets, the unsophisticated lower class hordes Commander George Washington could barely stand to work with. But there are also the landowners and the new aristocratic class which figured out, hey, they could ride this thing and get a greater share of the loot than with the Brits in charge. So after the war, we had the quandary of who would pay for it. The creditor class wanted their loans to be paid back in full with full interest, but the farmers and small merchants resisted, and we had the Shays and Whiskey Rebellions. Uh, if my reading is right, after the Articles of Confederation, the Constitution was an attempt to balance these two sides. Was it finally resolved, and was it a fair compromise, and are those issues still with us today? Well, of course, the Constitution is a, is a, a collection of compromises, not only between the um, factions, as you call them, uh, that you mentioned, but also be between small states and large states, not to mention states in which slave owning was allowed. Right. Um, and you know, the... We do go into a fair amount of this. We do talk about the Articles of Confederation in some detail and the problems with them and why the framers felt they had to completely eliminate them rather than just revise them. Um, um, and we also go into um, Shay's rebellion for that reason as well. Uh, but let me let Sandy pick up on this because I know he's going to have a lot to say about it. You know, your point is absolutely right that you cannot understand the 787, Constitu 787 Convention and the Constitution without understanding the absolute necessity of compromise. And there were two chief compromises, one of them taught in high school as the capital G, capital C, Great Compromise. That's the one that gave equal voting power in the Senate to all states, regardless of their size. James Madison thought it was terrible. He denounced it as an evil, but he did concede that it was a lesser evil because the greater evil would have been no constitution at all, and so it was the price paid to small states to get a constitution. The other compromise, which never gets capital letters and never is described as the great compromise, was the three-fifths clause, where slave states got extra representation in the House of Representatives, and therefore extra representation in the Electoral College because their slaves were counted as part of the basis of representation. Right. Um, and this was simply a crude but 
also thought necessary deal that that purchased the Constitution. Now, nobody today, or for that matter, a lot of people by 1860 and before, would you know were arguing that look, this was an immoral, a rotten compromise. And if we really want to achieve the great goals of the preamble, and Cynthia and I organize our book in some sense around the great goals of the preamble, because Mm -hmm. they tell us what the point of the whole enterprise is. The point isn't to have a presidency. It isn't to have a Senate. It is to establish justice, to secure the blessings of liberty, Mm. et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we need to do is, I think, to separate the kinds of compromises that were made and are in some sense at least understandable, if not out and out justifiable, in terms of the political challenges facing the framers in Mm. 1787. Think of the compromise that was made in allying with Stalin against Hitler. I think it was a compromise worth paying. Defeating Hitler was by far the most important need in the 1940s. But we shouldn't kid ourselves that there weren't costs in allying with Stalin. Uh, So you ask yourself... As time goes by, Lesser of evils. what yeah. of these past decisions really are objectionable that we shouldn't feel ourselves under a duty to live with? And what of the compromises really made very good sense at the time and made good sense today, given the complexity of the country? Mm-hmm. And Going back to your very, very opening statement, what I have emphasized in much of my own work is what I think is the real cost of treating the Constitution as a sacred document Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that can't be questioned at all. Mm -hmm. That runs contrary to the framers themselves. What I really admire about the framers was their audacity their willingness to describe the Ars Confederation as creating an imbecilic system and believing that, you know, we the people really had to respond to these problems. And I think we don't have that sense today at the national level because we treat the Constitution too much as a sacred Mm -hmm. document. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rather than a document that has its strengths and weaknesses, and we ought to address what the weaknesses are. Well, certainly uh, Judge Scalia, not one of my favorites, considered himself to be an originalist. Now, that's his interpretation. To me, you know, I would think being an originalist means understanding the intent of the Constitution, but... Oh, sure. But originalism, whatever one thinks of it, is a debate about how the Constitution ought to be interpreted. Uh Originalism tells you literally nothing about how we ought to design the Constitution 
today or whether you know it would be good to junk parts of the Constitution and replace them. Now, there are some people, and interestingly enough, Scalia really wasn't one of them. Scalia was a fanatic about theories of constitutional interpretation. But he did not go out of his way to say, you know, the framers got everything just right. In fact, he himself was quite critical of the 17th Amendment, which allows the electorate to choose senators instead of, as in the original Uh Constitution, state legislatures to do it. But, you know, that's a decision made in the 17th Amendment. He didn't think judges could ignore it, but he indicated in the speech or two that he kind of regretted it. And the real point of our book is not to talk about constitutional interpretation. I've written about some of that in some other work, Mm -hmm. but the focus of this book is, frankly, on the parts of the Constitution that are never litigated, because there's not much fuss about what they mean. The real question is whether they're wise or unwise, whether they serve us well Uh or not. Uh If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is called Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about the roots of our democracy with authors Cynthia and Sanford Levinson, their newly revised book, Fault Lines, Fault Lines in the Constitution, uh, the framers, their fights, and the flaws that affect us today. And and let's let's get into some of those. You know, there are many crises that we faced since 1787 that have resulted from or been fueled by limitations, ambiguities, and flatly bad ideas in the Constitution. What are some of those bad ideas that are still with us that are a problem for us now? Well, as you can tell by uh, listening to Sandy, he he really is the scholar here, um, which is wonderful. <laughs> um, it's been great to work on this with him. And, and I've learned a lot writing the book. I came to the conclusion, with some reluctance only because I realized that there are many severe fault lines. It's it's hard to dismiss the problem of, say, the Electoral College or what he calls gerrymandering and I call gerrymandering. But I came to the conclusion that, for me, the greatest fault line actually is the Senate. As he just said a minute ago, there's no room to interpret the existence of the Senate in the Constitution, the establishment of the Senate, or the fact that there should be two senators from every state. Um, So that's not a matter of interpretation. That's a matter of the structure of our government, which we take for granted. We assume there's going to be an upper house and a lower house, and this is the way it's going to be. But the inequities caused by, say, North Dakota having two senators and Texas or California also having two senators... The problems with that really um, become extremely serious. Every chapter in the book begins with a story. The chapter about the Senate starts with the story about funding of distribution, funding distribution um, of the uh, USA Patriot Act after 9/11. Senator Leahy from Vermont, a neighboring state to yours, um, mm-hmm. declared that. of the Patriot Act funds, a minimum of that amount, should go to every single state. Well, that made 
some sense, I'm sure, it certainly protected some of the states. After all, if it were distributed merely per capita, then you know the little states would have gotten practically nothing. The result of that, though, was that Wyoming, for instance, got $61 per person, and California, which has a long Pacific coastline and could be very vulnerable to terrorism, received only $14 per person from Patriot Act funding. Um, some of the states didn't actually know what to do with all of their money, mm-hmm. and it would be hard to say that they used them for purposes that would oh, really? um, deflect uh, possible attacks. Each chapter then also goes on to um, a section on why we ended up with this. So we have um, an explanation, a description of what happened at the Constitutional Convention in 1787 and why there is a Senate and why it is that there are two senators per state. We can go on to that later on. But then we expand to, in every chapter, a section called, So What's the Big Problem? Well, the big problem really isn't only distribution of Patriot Act funding, but other examples we give, for instance, include the effects of the um, influence of small states, and in particular we talk about a confluence of small population states in the upper Midwest that are able to greatly influence um, agricultural funding. Mm-hmm. Um, Sandy has often said, connect the dots. Connect the dots from what's in the Constitution to issues today. Connecting the dots from the fact that, for instance, there were nine low-population states that have, excuse me, high-population states that have only 18 senators last year, you know, now, um, but... 41 low-population states well, no, that have... It's, it's 41 states with less than half the total population. Right. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Yes, that's right. So there are more people in this country that have far fewer senators and more people in the country that have... Excuse me, fewer people that have more senators. Right. Um, and people certainly feel as frustrated. As a result of that, as a result of the um, funding population, the, the funding in uh, the Midwest, corn syrup... A huge amount of corn is grown. It's protected by um, agricultural subsidies. Um, corn syrup ends up in everything, including in kids' lunch. So I mentioned earlier that this book is right. um, intended for 10 and up. Kids should be aware that one reason that they're getting desserts or bread or fried chicken nuggets um, with corn syrup in it relates back to the fact that we have two senators per state. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the fact is, given you know, our own politics, we much prefer Vermont's two senators to Texas's two senators. That being said, I don't believe in the 21st century where we claim to believe in something called one person, one vote. Right. Um, you know, n- no person's vote is stronger than any other person's, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think there is a defense for Vermont with, I think, a current population of about 600,000 yes. people. Yes. And Texas with a current population of about 27 million people having the same power in the Senate. Um, and, um, you know, it's a big problem true with Wyoming and oh, yeah. California. Um, and as Cynthia points out, 
it's not only that you already have a situation where a majority of the population collectively has a grotesquely small percentage of the votes in the Senate, but demographers predict that I think it's by 2040, which, relatively speaking, is just around the yeah, corner. Seventy percent sure. of the American population, for better or for worse, will be found in 15 of the states with a total of 30 senators, and 30 percent, less than a third of the population, will be in the remaining 35 states, and they'll get 70 of the senators. Mm. And this has real consequences oh, really does. for the politics of climate change, as Cynthia points out, agricultural policy, uh, the movement from, say, coal or fossil fuel to sustainable energy. Uh, as well as gun control, gun regulation right, issues. Right. There is a good reason, um, and I don't necessarily mean to denounce the senators from states like they represent uh, their people Vermont or Maine or Idaho sure. for being attentive to the fact that a lot of their constituents hunt. They're yes, not terrorists, exactly, right. that, but they like their guns. But the fact is that the small states, the small rural states, and this is independent of whether often whether senators are Democratic or Republican. Mm -hmm. They're voting their constituents. Of course. That, you know, there are lots of articles today about the response to El Paso and Dayton, and many of them are focusing not only on Mitch McConnell, but the structure of power in the Senate to make it extraordinarily unlikely that anything truly significant is going to be done about the problems revealed this past weekend. Yeah, it's really, it, it's so fascinating to to see how history comes forward. And, you know, we have this tremendous political and cultural divide in America. And, you know, Bernie Sanders got a lot of flack from, from liberals for not being a uh, purist on gun control. And you bring right. up, you know, right. Vermont is different. There's a lot of hunting there. And... I have to ask, looking back in, in history, he's very popular now. Alexander Hamilton was for a strong federal government, whereas more democratic, decentralized power was sometimes advocated by Thomas Jefferson. You know, and, and the war against Southern secession, that was a big deal that I, I think we're still not really understanding, that, you know, most of us seem to think it's about the fierce conflict of the two cultures uh, demanding dom domination of the other. But I, I wonder, you know, had the South been let go, I mean, they felt that they were not fairly represented, that the North Northern senators and, and mm -hmm. members of Congress were dominating it. I wonder if we had let them go, how that might have affected things. I mean, it's always fun to talk about. Uh, Sandy know. is from the South, so he has yeah. well, I mean, lots of that. Um, this is something I've thought about a lot. Um, the, I mean, I, th I think one has to break your statement into two questions. The first question is, what if we had simply let the South go? The second question is, given that 
for whatever reason, Abraham Lincoln decided that was not the right policy. Then what followed with regard to you know, winning the war and engaging in the kind of reconstruction that was necessary? The paradox of American history, and this is something I've thought about a lot and have written about a lot, is that in a very, very real way, the South won the war. Yes, Precisely because Reconstruction, when all is said and done, was remarkably weak. Although you might not know that from some of the standard histories, often written by Southerners, Southern whites, Mm -hmm. who had an incentive to emphasize the stre- how strong the elements of Reconstruction were. But I mentioned the Three-Fifths Compromise before, yep. where slave states got an unjustified benefit from the fact that their enslaved persons were counted toward representation. Well, the good news of Reconstruction was the 15th Amendment, so that the formerly enslaved persons were now, at least the males, not the females, right. that didn't come until 1920, right. but the, the males were now constitutionally entitled to vote. The bad news is that by the turn of the 20th century, the so-called white redeemer government, oh, yes. that is mm-hmm. the return to full-fledged power yeah. of the previous white ruling class, disenfranchised African Americans. And so it turns out that the South continued to get grotesquely undeserved political power that really lasted until the 1960s and the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965, which the current Supreme Court is gutting at every opportunity. Um, But it was really in you know, my lifetime, given my age, that African Americans really and truly were allowed to vote in the South. Until then, you had Southern whites getting extra power, particularly in the House of Representatives, and you literally can't understand American politics without understanding the extent that they as I say, won the war. It didn't have to be that way. We talk about a black senator from Mississippi, somebody named Hiram Revels, um, who was appointed to the Senate by the Mississippi legislature in 1870. And there were other, there were a lot of black elected officials in the 1870s. But to be completely and brutally frank, they were elected in part because of military reconstruction that enabled the new, more inclusive government to function and to stave off the Ku Klux Klan. Once military reconstruction came to an end, the Klan and its more moderate versions basically won. Well, there's a quote that I often refer to from abolitionist Wendell Phillips, who said after the war that the South may never leave the Union or take up arms against it, but it would rule from within. And yes, mm-hmm. and you know, to to a shocking degree, oh, um, that is um, tr- 
true. Um, and I wanted to, if, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guests are authors of the new fascinating book, Fault Lines in the Constitution, Cynthia Levinson and Sanford Levinson, Fault Lines in the Constitution. Boy, that is a big deal. And of course, there's a lot of talk these days about, as we sort of touched on before, doing away with the Electoral College, because, you know, people say, wait a minute, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. Well, she's one of six people who won the popular vote, but didn't become president. But if I wonder your opinion on this, you know, from a constitutional and, you know, just fairness aspect, if the president were elected just by the popular vote, Clearly, the more populous regions, the Northeast and California, would have much greater power. I mean, to be more liberal, quite frankly. But is that fair? You're critical of the uh, Electoral College as one of the major fault lines. Talk about that, if you would, please. Sure. Um, you know, I think this is where we really have to come to terms with the extent to which we believe in one person, one vote or equal voting power, because the basis of the defense of the way state legislatures were organized in 1960, that is, before the Supreme Court in 1962-1964, really created the doctrine of one person, one vote, and which led to dramatic changes in every single state in the country with regard to how its legislature was organized. The claim in Tennessee, say, or in Alabama, was that the outnumbered farmers needed protection against all of these people who lived in Birmingham or Atlanta or Portsmouth um, you know, or Burlington or wherever. Sure. And that the way to protect them, I grew up in North Carolina, um, the way to protect residents of small counties was to give them equal voice in the Senate. So in North Carolina, when I was growing up, Henderson County, which is where I grew up, had about 30,000 people in it. Mm. Uh, This is 1950s. Um, And the largest county was Mecklenburg County, that is Charlotte, North Carolina. And in the 1950s, it had only 200,000 people. Today, Charlotte is a city of about a million. But Henderson, Henderson County, I think, still has only about 40,000, 40,000, 50,000 people maximum. Um, and so the argument is, you know, the people living in Charlotte would just swamp right. the, those of us who are living in um, Hendersonville. And the Supreme Court said no, that, you know, we don't represent trees or cows. Legislatures represent people. And it's equal vote. So I really do think Mm. that one really has to decide whether one basically accepts the principle of one person, one vote or not. And if you do, then the Electoral College and the U.S. Senate are both indefensible, Mm. even though as a lawyer you can say, look, The Constitution clearly requires both. There's no question about that. So the only question is wisdom. Let me say one other thing that I think is relevant to this debate. Let's talk for 30 seconds about affirmative action. Wherever you stand on the issue of affirmative action, 
I think that most people would oppose or indeed be outraged if one were to suggest giving an extra vote to your favorite minority, whatever it might happen to be. Mm. Um, But with regard to the Electoral College or the Senate, it really does turn out that if you live in a small state, you get extra votes relative to those of us who live in Texas. Um, And frankly, maybe it's because I live in Texas, maybe I have a different view (laughs) if I lived in New Hampshire, (laughs) quite frankly. But But I think the important point is the debate about fundamentals and what we mean by equality in the 21st century. Sandy's given a really important response there. And let me just add um, some more technical aspects to this. Um, As I mentioned, we have sections in each chapter called, So What's the Big Problem? So there are other aspects to the Electoral College, the existence of the Electoral College, which no other country in the world has anything like. So there there has to be a a message there. Um, and that is the effect that the Electoral College itself has on the election. Um, we live part of the year in Massachusetts and part of the year in Texas. Um, in neither place is the allocation of our state's Electoral College votes in question. No, that might change in 2020 in Texas, but who knows? <laughs> right. It's, there may be up for grabs. A little unclear. Um, as a result of that, in neither state do we tend to see candidates coming through? It's just not worth their time. There's no reason for them to come raise money here. That may change again because, actually, Texas has large cities um, which are tending Democratic, so we're beginning to get some Democratic candidates periodically with their hands out. Um, But basically, the Electoral College, not only, as Sandy said, as a, a matter of equity, undermines the notion of one person, one vote, and affirmative action. But in in addition to that, has a deleterious effect on the process of the election itself. That, I mean, in Massachusetts, the only reason, frankly, we know there's a presidential election going on is because of New Hampshire. (laughs) That (laughs) the the television markets, as you very well know, you get Boston television stations, and so we see all of the ads that are really directed at you. Yes. They're not directed at Massachusetts no. because nobody believes that the Republican candidate has a chance in 2020. Um, and that leads to certain forms of pandering that candidates of both parties engage in, that the so-called battleground states. And one paradox is that the Electoral College maintains its hold over time, sometimes because small states band together to keep their relatively modest advantage. I mean, the, the fact is uh, New Hampshire gets a little bit of advantage from the Electoral College, but it's not all that much. Right, New Hampshire's four. real yeah. advantage comes in the Senate. But it is, ironically enough, the battleground states who make out like bandits. Um, We even have some statistics in the book. In in the 2016 presidential election, um, candidates spent almost all of their time and money in only 14 states. It just wasn't worth it for them to go elsewhere. Half of that was spent in just four battleground states. 
Florida, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Ohio. Hmm. 36 states with two-thirds of the population of the country were ignored by the candidates. I mean, the paradox is that Al Gore probably would have become president had he spent more time campaigning in New Hampshire. Or in his home state. Or than in Florida, given that New Hampshire went for Bush only because of Ralph Nader. Absolutely. And Al Gore simply ignored New Hampshire in the last couple weeks of the campaign with disastrous results. That's for sure. Uh, But it... So it's not clear that small population states actually end up getting what they want. Right, right. I mean, the Electoral College is an extraordinarily strange thing. I would also point out one other feature. The Electoral College is a system. It's not simply how we, how the Electoral College elects presidents, because it is altogether thinkable, even though it's not really happened fully since 1824, but it's altogether thinkable that you could have a third party that got enough electoral votes to prevent the Electoral College from choosing a majority candidate. A shift of a relatively few votes in both 1948 and 1968, when you had two right. thoroughly racist regional candidates, Strom Thurmond and then George Wallace, Almost as running as third-party candidates. Right. If a few votes in other parts of the country had shifted, you could easily have had a no-majority electoral college. That means, thanks to the U.S. Constitution, that the House of Representatives picks right. the next president, and they pick on the basis of one state, one vote. So this uh-huh. means that the one representative from Vermont is the equal equal of the 53 or 54 representatives from California. It also leads to the consequence, and, you know, God only knows what's going to happen in 2020, but I don't rule out the possibility that there will be a third-party national unity ticket. Um, Think John Kasich and John Hickenlooper, for example, who would run on the basis that neither of the parties is really trustworthy to bring the country together, that they can do it, and they carry two states. They carry Ohio and Colorado. That's it. And Trump and the Democratic nominee, whoever it is, relatively split the electoral vote, so there is no winner, and then you go to the House. And it's not unthinkable that the House could have 26 majority Republican delegations, that is, the one representative from North Dakota will be Republican, the two representatives from Idaho will be Republican, etc., and it will add up to 26, and they would vote for Donald Trump even though, let's assume for the moment that Donald Trump not only gets only, let's say, 40% of the national vote, but that the Democratic candidate, whoever it is, gets 42% of the national vote. But the national unity ticket, like Ross Perot in 1992, gets 18 or 19% 
of the vote, but unlike Perot, they managed to carry a state or two. Mm. That is the electoral college system. And let me tell you, people never think about it. I suspect that even most lawyers don't really appreciate fully what would happen if the Electoral College doesn't produce a majority winner. And, you know, whatever one thinks of the Senate, the Electoral College is far more grotesque in terms of how the House would ultimately elect a president. Well, I... uh, Sandy's given a, a great um, overview into some of the, the problems of the Electoral College that people don't think about. There are some other issues that I'd like to mention. Sure. Um, we've talked... Um, sort of glancingly about gerrymandering um, and presidential pardons and whom the president can hire and fire. We mentioned at the outset we referred to tsunamis. There are some other extremely serious problems that um, we could be facing that people don't connect to the Constitution. For instance, emergency powers and continuity in government in case something happens to the president. Um, Climate change and um, other acts of terrorism, heaven forbid, um, could end up with the president declaring um, emergencies, at which point many of our rights would be very much in question. Um, So I I want to be sure that people understand that we go into um, a number of other fault lines in the book as well. I don't want to let us come to an end without mentioning why I really love the New Hampshire Constitution. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> I admire the fact that New Hampshire, what I like about New Hampshire's role in the presidential process is its retailness, yes. that you get know, to meet amazing. all yes. of the candidates. Absolutely. Um, Very democratic. Fact, I, <laughs> yep, yeah. I, I was giving a talk in New Hampshire on Constitution Day in 2015, and lo and behold, you know, Hillary Clinton was there in yeah, Concord that evening, and no doubt somebody else is going to be there the next week or so. Um, but what I love about the New Hampshire Constitution, and this goes back to 1784, because you operate, as I'm sure you know, under the Constitution of 1784 as amended, that one of its most wonderful features is that now every 10 years, it used to be, I think, every seven years, you as a New Hampshire voter are given the opportunity to vote yay or nay on whether or not to have a new constitutional oh, convention, state oh. constitutional convention. And you've had 17 of them. And I think this is great because it demonstrates that the people of New Hampshire could come together over and over and over again and have sober, thoughtful, civil discussions. No doubt some of them were rancorous. People shot at one another. But overall, it has worked to keep the 1784 Constitution updated. There are 13 other states that have similar provisions in their state constitutions. And my own view is that one of the really deficient aspects of the U.S. Constitution is that there is no way by which we, the people, can do, at the national level, can do what the people of New Hampshire can do, which is to trigger a new state convention 
and have what I compare to a medical checkup or taking the car in for a tune-up where you ask, well, how was it working? Do we need to make any changes? If you decide at the end of the discussion, you know, things are really great, then that's wonderful. But at least New Hampshire assures the possibility of serious conversation over the years. And that's what the U.S. Constitution really, frankly, is awful in doing. And going back to your introductory remarks, I think that adds to the notion of veneration because there's a feeling that we can't do anything about it. Whereas New Hampshire writes, no, you can do something about your own country. Well, you're going you're gonna to make all the other listeners, like in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and Iowa, feel awfully jealous of New Hampshire, but that's where the show is, <laughs> is coming from. Yeah, it's amazing that we're courted. I mean, everybody in New Hampshire just assumes all the presidential candidates are going to court us. So many more questions I would have. I mean, it used to be taught when I was in school, problems in democracy. We're still there. I can imagine people throwing up their hands. Ah, there's nothing I can do. Is it hopeless? Any sense? No, I mean, we've got we, a couple do, we do not. I was thinking that we do not want to end on a down note. Thank you. By any means, <laughs> there are many things that people can do. Uh, first of all, people can vote. Uh, we certainly oh, hope for go. that. Yeah. We also make a recommendation in the in the book that just as the framers held straw votes on the issues that they were discussing, uh-huh. Uh-huh. there could be straw conventions that communities could hold on issues related to the Constitution. In fact, the last chapter of the book goes into ways to resolve these problems. Some of them involve changing Senate rules or passing new laws or amending the Constitution. Part of the point of the book is that all of these are difficult to undertake. So the book ends with a debate that we had related to what Sandy was just talking about Uh and whether or not there should be another constitutional convention. There could even be discussions of that. Now, as you can probably tell, he thinks that's a great idea. (laughs) Uh, It it panics me. Yes, me too. (laughs) But that in itself is also a good undertaking yes, it is. because it requires people to have a deeper understanding of the Constitution, its advantages, and what the problems are. Yep. Some student said, you know, is there anything we can do? And I said, you know, the answer is yes, because what you, for better or for worse, have an almost unique opportunity to do is to hold candidates' feet to the fire. Yep. Your listeners have a far, far higher probability of making that happen as an academic living in Texas. We also invite people to join our conversation, literally. We blog every month at www.faultlinesintheconstitution.com, and we invite comments on our blogs. Thank you so much. We got to run. Interesting stuff. Fault lines in our Constitution. Bye. A lot to work with. Thank you. In 1787, I'm told our founding fathers did agree to write a list of principles for keeping people free. The USA was just starting out a whole brand new country. And so our people spelled it out, the things that we should be. And they put those principles down on paper and called it the Constitution. And it's been helping us run our country ever since then. 